Yesterday, Sarah and I were at a florist shop looking at different flowers, finalizing all that for the wedding. And uh, there's a lot of flowers out there, a lot of fascinating colors and forms and textures and all sorts of different options. And uh, if you were going to pick a flower to be compared to, and some of you guys might say, I don't really want to be compared to a flower, but if you're going to pick one, there are some flowers that are strong and majestic and towering. Maybe you'd say, you know, for the guys, you'd say, I want to be compared to a tulip tree. And a tulip tree is a fascinating Michigan native tree. It's tall. It gets, I think, like 80 feet tall. And it has these amazing flowers, but you don't usually get to see them unless they fall off because they're way high up in the air. Uh, maybe you'd want to be compared for the ladies to something like a rose that is beautiful and fragrant and that sort of thing. Maybe something cheery like a sunflower. Peter picked grass. And grass has a sort of beauty to it, right? But perhaps not as stunning or as majestic or as intriguing as some of these other options that I mentioned. And yet it is an accurate picture of the brief nature of our lives and the fact that they can have sort of a fleeting beauty to them. And we tend not to see the flower of grass in our present situation if you live in most cities, because if you see the flower of grass, you're probably about to get a citation from the ordinance officer. But if you are to like, go out away from the city and drive around and you see grass or wheat or any sort of a flowering stalk like that in the summer sun or even in the fall, it is a, a beautiful thing to see but it's also very short. If you could pick any stage of life to be compared to, what would you pick? The strength of youth, the maturity of middle age, the wisdom of old age? Peter picked newborn babies. Not our finest moment for most of us, and yet that is an apt picture of our dependence on God and his word and an illustration of us being born again by God's power to the salvation that he described earlier in chapter 1. Why does he make these comparisons? With grass, he contrasts our temporary nature with the eternal nature of God's word, which brings us salvation. And with babies, he illustrates our dependence on God's word for any possibility of spiritual maturity. These illustrations of grass and of newborn babies are memorable, but they are here most importantly to support the main idea that Peter is trying to get across to us at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And I believe if we were to summarize it, it would be this. Love while you can as God's word matures you. Love while you can as God's word matures you. Firstly, God uh, wants you to love one another while you can. We see this in verses 22 through 25. Why should we do this? Well, love one another because you have salvation. This first phrase here, he says, you've obeyed the truth. And by implication, by receiving the gospel... And we see this here in the first part of verse 22. We also see it in verse 2, that you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's a description of the salvation that has come to us. Verse 3, God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Uh, we see also in verse 8, you do not see him now, but believe in him and you greatly rejoice. And then also verse 21, through him, through Jesus, you are believers in God. So your faith and hope are in God. We see similarly uh, descriptions of this obeying of the truth 
and receiving of the gospel. For example, in um, Romans chapter 2, Paul says it this way, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. And so seeking after God is described as a kind of obedience, as it is associated with faith, and refusing to follow God is seen as disobedience. You see this as well uh, in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, where it talks about God appearing from heaven to punish those who do not obey the gospel. And then even Galatians 5 uh, describes this same sort of idea in terms of our obeying the truth by receiving the gospel. Uh, Paul says, It was for freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify that every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. And so he associates both the initial aspects of salvation and our ongoing experience of salvation, describes it as obeying the truth, holding firm to Christ, not turning aside anything else. So you have salvation. You've obeyed the truth by receiving the gospel, if you have in fact experienced that. As a result, then, your soul has been purified by the truth that you might truly love one another. We see this in the second phrase of verse 22. You have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Uh, this is said in contrast, again, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, uh, where Paul talks about not taking vengeance, but rather letting God do that. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And then later in Peter's own book, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So God saves you in connection with obedience to the truth that he produces in you, but that you actually experience on an ongoing basis, that obedience to the truth, that experience of salvation, is supposed to produce a sincere and fervent love for one another. This shouldn't surprise us, because when we go all the way back to what God originally required of people, Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments was, love God with every fiber of your being, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you begin to love God and obey the truth and receive salvation, the natural response and the necessary response is then you then love one another and thus fulfill the purpose for which God made you. And so then Peter says, love one another fervently and sincerely. I think it's fascinating to consider this in light of Jesus' own admonition to Peter. Peter denies Christ. Peter goes his own way. Peter, who said, I will die for you, Jesus, curses and swears, saying, I never even met the man. Jesus appears to him after the resurrection in this brief uh, exchange at the end of John 21. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. If you know Jesus, if you really love him, you're going to love his people too. We see this illustrated further in the book of 1 John. Uh, in 1 John chapter 3, John says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know that by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him, and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. And so John and Peter and Paul all have this concept and agree salvation is connected with obedience to God, which then prepares you to love one another, which then means you actually have to do it. Because it's one thing to say, I believe in God and I've begun to obey him. It's another thing to say, so I'm, I know I should love the people around me. And then it's the point of it is to get the point where we actually express it. Because as John just said in 1 John, if you know the right thing to do and you're not doing it, it's meaningless. James says, faith without works is sin. John says, if you don't love your brother, you abide in death. And you're in the company of people like Cain, who hated his brother and murdered him. And so we tend to say, well, it's either I love them or I leave them alone. And John says, it's either you love them or you hate them. And that's the same point that Peter is making. You are saved so that you will obey the truth, love one another, you know that you should, so keep doing it and grow in it and do it fervently and sincerely. Which then takes us to the next few verses, which I think are saying this, love one another, not just because you have salvation, but through God's living and enduring word, even though your life is short. You've been born again by means of that which cannot perish, verse 23. It says, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. All right, you ever had to fix a patch of uh, bare dirt in your yard? You have grass, theoretically, in your yard, and you're trying to fix it, so you have to throw out grass seed, right? So Peter could be referring to that, 
or he could be referring to seed as in the process of biology by which uh, babies are made and, and people are born. It's not by a natural process that you come to belong to God, believe in God, obey God, live for God. It is by a supernatural process. Jesus talked to Nicodemus about this. Nicodemus comes, Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, hey, Jesus, potentially my mom is dead. And even if she weren't, I'm a grown man. I can't go back and go through the process again. I won't fit. It just, I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus says, you're thinking about it in natural terms. I'm giving you a supernatural illustration. You are born once according to natural processes. Grass seed being sown, fathers and mothers giving birth to children, conceiving and giving birth to children. That's not what I'm talking about. That's the illustration. That's not the point. The point is you need to a new experience of life. You experienced physical life by becoming a human being. Now you need to experience spiritual life. And that comes about, according to verse 23, through the living and enduring word of God. You, as Romans 10 says, hear the word as it is preached to you. The Spirit uses that word, gives you spiritual life. You respond in faith and repentance and experience and know and continue to have salvation. And yet you and I are perishable by nature. All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower falls off. And so we, again, go back to that illustration and we consider what it is saying. Grass is beautiful, but it's fragile. There's a lot of things that can impact it. Heat in the summer, being mown and cut down. There's all sorts of things that impact grass fruiting and flowering and bearing seed and all those sorts of things. Humanity is compared to grass because we are fleeting, because we are temporary. Not evil, but short-lived and fragile and all of those sorts of things. You are perishable by nature. This is actually probably a quote from, and uh, we studied this earlier this year, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he said, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We tend to quote Isaiah 40, 31, the mount up on wings as eagles part, right? That's the one that gets put on inspirational plaques and t-shirts and things like that. But this is also from Isaiah 40. And we tend not to put that on t-shirts because we don't like to be reminded of our mortality. And yet it's a fact. All of us, barring the return of Jesus Christ or supernatural intervention, which has only happened a handful of times in human history with people like Enoch and Elijah, aside from those two things, all of us are going to experience aging and death. And even if we are extraordinarily long-lived by human standards and we reach 100, 110, 120 those latter years are difficult, we fade, and we die. You're perishable by nature. So we say, all right, Moses said 80 years is a good average. All right, 80 years, okay? 
I think I told you maybe a, a month or so ago that I found a book uh, when I was sorting through books downstairs that was from, I think, 1870. That's long before I came around. That seems like a long time ago to us. When did God talk to Isaiah? God talked to Isaiah at least 2,000 years ago, because that would have been the time of Christ. But then there were the 400 years that there was no prophet, so that puts us at 2,400 years ago. And then there was the time period of all the people writing after Isaiah, so throw on another 300 years roughly. 2,700 years ago, give or take. God spoke those words through Isaiah. Isaiah wrote them down. And you and I uh, think that 100 years is a long life. We go back further. God conceived of all these things before the world was even formed. Conservative scholars who would believe the way the Bible talks and abandon theories of evolution and so forth, on the upper end would talk about that being 10, 12,000 years ago, potentially as short as something like six. So let's say six or 8,000 years ago. Before that point, God conceived of all these things and purposed to reveal himself in his word. Now we start to look at the concept of eternity. Six or 8,000 years sounds like a long time. But think about eternity. It, it starts and it continues and it keeps going and it doesn't stop and it keeps going and it doesn't stop. Peter's highlighting this contrast between God whose words are certain and God's word that is eternal and lasting and our lives and our experience, beautiful and wonderful and amazing though it may be, that's like grass, green in the morning, dead in the evening, cut down the next day. You're perishable by nature. But God's word endures forever. He says in verse 25, this is the word which was preached to you. If you're going to put your certainty in something, do you want to put your certainty in grass or in a brick wall? Do you want to put your certainty in grass or in a mountain? Do you want to put your certainty in grass or in some other thing that does not change? And even those things I'm using as illustrations change, although very, very, very slowly. But God is described as a rock. His words are described as sure. And we could put our hope and trust in that which is temporary and does not last, or in God and who he is. And he says, this is this certain, eternal, sure, unchanging, trustworthy word is what was preached to you and is the basis of your life. Why is that important? If the basis of your life was the schemes of man, and the schemes of man is like grass, and the power of man fades like grass, then your salvation is a pretty risky and uncertain thing. But if your salvation is on the basis of something that's like a rock, or a mountain, 
or a strong fortress or something like that, then you have something that you can be confident in. It's not going to quickly fade. It's not empty. It's not fleeting. It's something that is certain and sure and trustworthy. And so to sum all these ideas up, you possess a lasting salvation even though your life is short because it comes by God's eternal word. And so that takes us back to the ideas earlier in the chapter. You're suffering for a little while. You're going through difficulty for a little while. You have this small space like the time in which grass flowers to serve God, to trust him, to love one another. Love one another during this short life that you have because it's connected with and anticipating the eternal life that God has begun to reveal to you and will reveal to you fully when you're in his presence. So love one another while you can. It is very easy to go through life focusing on things that occupy our time instead of experiencing the moments and the conversations and the ministry opportunities that God wants us to take. Our society's concept of rest is geared around dulling our senses and making the clock jump. There's a, a, I think he's a Catholic guy who wrote this thing called The Book of Virtues, and there's a story in there about a guy who got a little spool of thread. And he discovered, he was basically complaining about the fact that he found his experience of life as a kid to be dull. He wished it was next week or next month when he was going on vacation or those sorts of things. So this man appears, gives him this spool of thread. says, if you pull on it, then you can sort of skip ahead. So he's sitting in school. This is dreadfully dull. I don't want to keep doing this. So he pulls on the thread, and he finds himself graduated and apprenticed to a trade. Ah, this work, work is boring. So he pulls the thread, and he finds himself with a wife and kids. Things are challenging with the kids in the early years, so he pulls the thread, and he finds that the kids are gone. And uh, then some other difficult experience comes up and he pulls the thread, tries to skip over it. It's easy for us to go through life that way. There's something that we're looking forward to or there's something that we don't like. So we want to sort of skip ahead to the thing that we enjoy, skip past the thing that we don't like, or just put all of our focus and attention on getting schoolwork out of the way, getting work out of the way, getting anything unpleasant out of the way so that we can have fun. And then the fun that we do are, is things that, mm, again, dull our senses. It is not sinful to watch TV, but there are a lot of more amazing things that we could be doing. Now, I understand that we get to a point where we can't physically do all the activities that we used to do. And so I'm not saying that if you are physically unable to, uh, I had a chance to go kayaking yesterday. I'm not saying if you're physically unable to go get into a kayak, you have to do it anyway, because watching a nature show and seeing the beauty of God's creation is bad. You should just go out and figure out some way to experience it. 
But it doesn't have to be something like kayaking. It could be go sitting on your front, going and sitting on your front porch. It could be going and having a conversation with a friend over tea or lunch or whatever else. It could be any number of things that you and I could do that are actual and real and meaningful instead of just sort of sitting and, and watching things go by. There's a book I was reading a while back and he was talking about the subject of entertainment and he was saying that it's easy for us to want to watch other people experience things instead of experiencing them ourselves. Watch a Hallmark movie about two people falling in, falling in love and all of those sorts of things instead of actually going and loving your husband or wife. Watch some guy climb a great mountain instead of actually going out and experiencing something that's challenging and rewarding yourself. Watch someone else mm, spending time with kids and watching their antics and whatever else instead of actually doing that yourself. Watching someone else uh, struggle and publish a book or start a business or whatever else instead of actually doing that yourself. The point that I'm trying to make is those are experiences, but they can and should be done with people. And they're connected with this idea of loving one another. And we often settle for what is easiest when it comes to all those sorts of things. And so because life is short, there should be a sense of urgency that there are some moments that are going to come up that may not come up again. You have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and you say, i probably do it later. And maybe you never see that person again. You have an opportunity to um, answer a question one of your kids has or one of your friends has or someone at church has, and you're like, oh, there'll be time to talk about that later, and the moment just never seems right again. You have an opportunity to sit and meditate on some great truth about God and who he is, but you're rushing off to do the next thing, and so you miss it. God can work in all the circumstances of our lives. Braden had a question for me last night. We were talking about um, parenting and if your kids sort of go their own way and end up making all sorts of foolish decisions and all that sort of thing, does that mean that there's no hope? No, there, there's opportunities that God can work in someone's life no matter how broken, no matter how many foolish decisions they've made, all of those sorts of things. So there is hope, but how much better is it for us to be in the habit of taking the opportunities God sets before us to love the people around us, to spend time with them, to do things that are real and meaningful and matter, instead of looking back later on and saying, hmm, I really regret all those hours I spent watching TV and hanging out by myself. I don't think even though there's been times when in my selfishness I haven't wanted to do them, I don't think I've ever looked back and said, you know what, I really regret the fact that we took a walk that one day. I really regret the fact that I helped my kids with their homework. I really regret the fact that I sat down and had a meal with this person. 
Those are the things that we don't regret, but sometimes we see as a chore or drudgery or we don't want to do them. But those are the moments that God is calling us to live in as we love one another. So we're to love one another during our short life by means now of God's word maturing. Love one another as you grow up by God's word. We're going now to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. First of all, love one another by putting away evil ways. He says a number of words here in verse 1. Here's the point of them. You cannot love and wish someone else harm. Malice says, I want a bad thing to happen to you. For whatever reason. It's like, I see you and I just wish that you would break your leg. Or I wish that your car would break down. Or I wish that your house would burn down. I want something bad to happen to you. But I love you. Doesn't fit, does it? You cannot love and lie to those you claim to love. He says, put off deceit. I love you, but in whatever way you're actually lying to them in the same moment. I, uh, maybe it's little things. Hey, do you want to go do such and such? Oh, I can't because I've got this other thing. Well, that may or may not be true, but a lot of times there are excuses that we're making because we don't feel like doing something. And to the extent that they become bigger lies, we begin to believe the lie that there's someone better out there than your husband or wife. Uh... There's something better out there than following after God. To the extent that we start to believe those sorts of lies, we start to lie to the people around us. Ephesians talks about putting off lying, every man speak truth with his neighbor because we are members of one another. We lie because we think that it won't hurt anybody else, and it actually does because we're all connected. And so Peter says, you cannot love and lie to those that you claim to love. He says you can't love insincerely. He says put off hypocrisy. I love you. And then you go and complain to someone else for an hour about how terrible that person is. I love you. But your actions show that they're just empty words. You cannot love someone insincerely. You cannot love someone when you want what is someone else's or what is theirs. Therefore, putting aside envy. Envy says, hey, you have that, and I should have that, and so I'm jealous of you. You can't really love somebody if you are lusting after their possessions or their status or something about their family. You can't really love that person if every time you see them you just have this, uh, this, this overwhelming desire just to take what they have for yourself can't love them. You can't love them, finally, if you are slandering them. When you speak evil of someone, Jesus uh, talked about the fact that of, of the nature of our fruit expressed in our words. James said, out of the same fountain, can you have good and bad water? Can you have good and bad fruit? No. Trees generally produce good fruit or they produce bad fruit. 
Fountains generally produce good water or they produce bitter water. They don't go back and forth. And yet we think that it's normal and natural that we could go back and forth. That we say, I love God, but I'm going to go talk bad about somebody else behind the back. Peter says you can't love when you're constantly speaking evil of someone else. So love one another by putting away evil ways. But also love one another as you long to grow by God's word. It's not enough just to put off bad practices. They have to be replaced by something good. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 makes that clear. You believe in God through Jesus. Um, and so you should desire to want to know more of who he is. And the only way that you can discover that is through his word. And our desire for God's word often is kind of lackadaisical and apathetic. And I'll get to it when I feel like it. Hey, did you hear about that new movie that's coming out? Hey, what about this current news event that's going on? Let's talk about that. Hey, you want to go try this new restaurant? What did you read in Hosea this week? Eh. Here's this thing that I was praying to God that's from God's word that really stirred my heart. Eh. Have you ever considered how this verse and that verse fit together and, and give us this idea about God? Eh. When a baby's hungry, what's the baby's attitude toward needing milk? Now! I get to it in three weeks. No. Babies desperately need food. And we desperately need God's word. Sometimes we just act like we don't. And this is not an attempt to guilt you into reading 18 chapters a day of your Bible or you don't love Jesus. This is if you go for days on end without thinking about the truth of God's word and you can't spare five minutes in your day to talk about it with someone, you're not longing for it like a newborn baby longs for milk. And if the only way that you and I will grow is through the truths revealed to us in Scripture because they reveal to us the God that we claim to love, and if loving God then leads to other people, there's no way that we can love one another if we're not fervently seeking after the truth of God and His Word because we won't know God and we won't care about the things that He cares about. And so the next time you find yourself going for a couple of days or for that matter, a couple of hours, and nothing about God or the truth of his word crosses your mind or your mouth, <clears throat> ask yourself, whether I like the illustration or not, Peter said I'm supposed to be like a newborn baby, desperately needing and crying after what God provides to help me grow. <clears throat> Finally, love one another because God has shown you kindness. You put away evil ways. You long to grow by God's word. 
because God has shown you kindness. You can only love if you have known God's love. We love one another because God has first loved us. If you have known God's love, you will show it to others. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you've said yes, like a baby longs for milk, has exactly what he needs in that milk, and grows by it, you and I taste and experience and see God's goodness and kindness to us through his grace and his mercy. And so then we can show it to others. Listen to these verses from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you have tasted of God's kindness, then you're going to love the people around you. If you don't love the people around you, either you haven't tasted of God's kindness or something's gotten stuck in the process and you need God's grace to help you change that. Maybe you're not getting enough of God's word and so you're not growing and so then you don't see the point of loving people around you. Maybe you never began to know and love God in the first place. But whatever it is that's going on, if you've tasted of God's kindness, if you have the ongoing experience of being fed by God's word, if you're putting off evil practices, if you realize that your life is short, all of these things together, you're going to say, I need to love other people. We think our lives will last, but our lives are like the grass, beautiful in the summer sunlight, dead and cut down in the winter. The love we give to others, though, as God has give, given it to us, will have an eternal impact. We try to make a name for ourselves in so many other ways. Scrapbooks and names on buildings and names on businesses and, and uh publishing books that have our name on it, and just all sorts of people try to make a name for themselves in all sorts of ways. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you and I are remembered, but the eternal impact of the love that we show in the small moments of life lasts and accomplishes God's purpose for our lives. Often we think better of us than we should, but we're like babies who need to grow up. We find ourselves making the same messes over and over again, and we realize, you know what? I'm not as mature as I thought I was. How do we grow off? We put off our childishness by God's grace, the sort of petty evil that is uh, that says, I want to do bad to you. I'm going to lie about you. I'm going to want your stuff. I'm going to speak badly to other people about you. We eagerly take in God's word. We take it in not so we can impress people by our knowledge, but so that it transforms who we are. By encountering what God is like, we become like the God we claim to follow. We love more as we encounter God's amazing kindness and salvation. 
So Peter is saying to us, love while you can as God's word matures you. You're like a grass, like grass. You're like a baby. But the point of it is this, love while you can as God's word matures you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there are many distractions. We have a fixed amount of time in this world and we don't know how long that is. Help the sense of our fleeting life and the fact that we have an eternal, secure word of salvation motivate us not to waste the moments that you have given to us. May that drive us to long to know you more like a baby longs for his mother's milk so that we might grow in the sort of love that you have called us to fervently live out toward one another, a love that flows from true love for you and a love that results in lasting impact on the world that you've put us in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.